This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on this miserable old Wednesday afternoon. We have a couple of things for you this afternoon. First, we'll start with the executive director of the school lunch program, John Finn, and then we'll have a chat with Carboneer Mayor Frank Butt. But first, we all know too well about the rising cost of food. The impact is being felt right across the board, from households to restaurants, wholesalers, charities. Well, the School Lunch Association provides hot meals to a number of schools across the province. Executive Director of the School Lunch Association, John Finn, joins me now. Hello. Good afternoon, Linda. How are you today? Great. So um, let's start with some of the basics, because that's how we like to start things here. What exactly is the School Lunch Association? The School Lunch Association is a registered charity that's been operating primarily in the St. John's metro area for the last 33 years. Um, Essentially, we provide a hot, nutritious lunch to children, um, currently in 41 schools. Um, 33 years ago, we started with one school, and we've continued to expand over this past uh, just over three decades. Um, The way our program works, we're, we're a registered charity, but we're also a social enterprise. So we employ staff to cook food um, in each of the schools in which we operate. Um, and then the, the money that we ask parents to pay for their meal um, as the social enterprise model helps offset uh, the cost of, of purchasing the food and paying the staff to do so. So a registered charity operating as a social enterprise. So how did it all get started? Well, uh, back in 1988, uh, there was a, an interchurch group. They were investigating the use of food banks in the city of St. John's, um, and they prepared a report, and that study kind of concluded that many families who use food banks, uh, their children were being kept home from school because parents didn't have money to send for food, for a cafeteria service uh, for their children for lunch. So in looking at some solutions, the committee, um, about a year after investigating, they they started and they said, well, why don't we prepare food in school for children to keep them in school? So a lot of parents were keeping their children home, perhaps um, either way of embarrassment of not sending the child to school with no lunch. And so attendance rates were becoming a bit of a a concern. And so that's kind of where the program started. Um, And now, like I said, since that time, it's certainly grown tenfold for sure and is it primarily in uh, primary elementary schools yes uh, the the primary elementary age range is, is usually kind of the target uh, that has been for our program, particularly because of the children in the primary and elementary school settings, they're children who don't leave for lunch. They, they probably wouldn't leave, say, to, to go to a restaurant up the road or a fast food, or they won't walk to go home, or their parents normally wouldn't pull them out. Whereas in a junior high setting or a high school setting, you can imagine the children are a bit more free to go. Um, having said that, we, we do operate currently in three junior highs uh, and one high school. And has it grown over the years? 
The program, as I said, has continued to grow. Um, so it's, you know, 2022, we look back just about seven years ago, the program was in just under 20 schools. And in seven years now, we've just increased up to 41 schools. And the demand for the program keeps growing. Uh, I can tell you, I, I, I field phone calls every day from schools all across the province um, inquiring about our program and how they can avail of the program. And uh, simply because there's a demand in, in many schools and, and in all corners of the province. So um, fielding calls from Corner Book to Grand Bank, Springdale, um, you name it. Um, a lot of schools are extremely interested in our program because of the benefit it provides to the children um, in which we serve. Our program, it, it's a non-stigmatizing program, Linda. So the way that works is we offer a pay-what-you-can model. So when parents go onto our online ordering platform and they click the meals they wish uh, for their child to receive each day, when they get to the checkout window, uh, there's a pay what you can option. So if the subtitle comes or the, the subtotal rather would populate and it may say sixty dollars um, for, for the meals that you're ordering for the month, you have the option as a parent to adjust that to reflect your current financial situation. So that way, all children can avail of our program. It's also non-stigmatizing in the sense that whichever menu item is offered for uh, for each day, um, all children will receive that same meal. So you can imagine if you and I were to, the bell was to ring, we were to go to the cafeteria um, in, in, in a school which does not serve school lunch, and you may have enough money to buy, uh, whether it's the pizza or, uh, you know, a chocolate milk, and I might be next to you in the lineup, and I may only have enough money to buy a muffin. Well, in our program, um, if you and I were in school today, we would both receive the exact same meal, and neither of us would know how much our family paid for that meal. Yeah, because I think we can all remember being in school and looking over and saying, "Oh, you got a lasagna, I got a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, so the, the stigma is kind of removed there. I mean, you can you can picture some children not being able to bring in so much or, you know, maybe they forgot their lunch. So in our program, the children receive the exact same meal. So today, Friday, uh, for example, St. Peter's Primary in Mount Pearl, I'll just take as an example, perhaps one of the, the largest uptakes in our program is in St. Peter's Primary. It's a school with just over 700 children um, in K to, K to 3, K to 4. And so today, um, just about 500 children will be partaking in the program, and they'll be having cheese pizza, Caesar salad, sliced cucumbers, pineapple tidbits, and a milk or a water. So it's about uh, your servings of fruit, your servings of vegetables, um, as well as, uh, as your milk. So um, that's a meal that all children who are partaking in our program will receive in that school today. So how do you come up with these um, menus? Because I've seen them. They're really good, actually. I'm very envious sometimes of what my son used to eat for his lunch as opposed to what I was bringing for lunch. Um, so how do you come up with these menu items and how do you make sure that they're balanced? That is a real uh, challenge. Um, school food is complex. Uh, there's a number of factors at play. You have to consider allergies uh, are different in each school. Um, and you also have to look at what the school particular kitchen cafeteria can accommodate. So I just gave St. Peter's Primary as an example. That's a school with, um, you know, a, a fairly nice commercial kitchen. They have a, a walk-in cooler, a walk-in freezer, um, lots of storage. There's different things that we 
can pull off at St. Peter's Primary that we might not be able to pull off at, say, Randy's River Elementary in the center of the city where the kitchen is probably no bigger than one that you or I would have um, in, our, in our home. So menu items are tailored to meet uh, a number of things, again, from the uh, capacity of the kitchen in which we operate, um, as well as allergies have to be a concern, and then numbers as well. So again, I'll I'll just go back to St. Peter's. We use that because it's a big school. We probably won't ever be serving grilled cheese sandwiches there anymore. And the reason is we don't have enough room to lay out, say, 500 slices of bread times two to make the sandwich. Um, whereas a school like Rennie's River, who may have 150 children might be eating today, we could easily pull off that menu option. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but I'm very grateful to have um, some, some my staff, the, the two operations managers here. They're both certified Red Seal chefs with uh, years of experience in the food industry. Um, and they meticulously put together some items that will ideally not be too repetitive, also offer your fruit and vegetable servings, and then also adhere to the provincial school uh, healthy food guidelines. Our guest today on On Target is the Executive Director of the School Lunch Association, John Finn. And when we come back after the break, John, I want to ask you a little bit about how the School Lunch Association does what it does, what goes into that, uh, who's involved, uh, right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Executive Director of the School Lunch Association, John Finn. And we're talking a little bit about what School Lunch Association does. So how do you do what you do? Do you you have volunteers? Do you have paid staff? How does that work? Well, uh, we do have paid staff. We have uh, approximately 85 to 90 staff, um, and these would be cooks or chefs, if you will, in our 41 different kitchens in the 41 different schools. So our staff are trained. They go through food uh, safety training um, and various other protocols that we we have to have. Um, essentially, these kitchens are licensed to us. We're, we're essentially no different than a, than a big restaurant, if you will. And so from a volunteer standpoint, we are very fortunate we have volunteers from the children. The children in each of our schools participate in uh, in the serving of the lunch in uh, in our program. So basically you can imagine, uh, again, the bell rings and a couple hundred children are now rushing to the cafeteria and we had two paid staff, let's say, at a school and they just prepared a, a couple hundred meals and they now have to find a way to serve uh, a couple hundred children in a very short window, uh, which children would receive for their lunch hour or lunch half, if you will. Some schools do 20 minutes uh, for, let's say, K to three and then 25 minutes for, you know, uh, four to six. So uh, we have a couple of children in each school that uh, they'll put on the hairnets and the gloves and the aprons and they'll help serve and they'll learn about our program and learn about serving in the kitchen. So it's a bit of a combination of uh, paid staff um, as well as some volunteers from our students in, uh, in our schools. And we found that by engaging the students to volunteer, a couple of things really. Well, one, we have a consistent pool of volunteers to choose from. Whereas if we had to ask parents uh, every day, you'd be juggling, you know, could the parents make it in or who's scheduled to come in? So the children are captive. They're already there. They're already in the school. So they're, they're easy for, to, to volunteer. Um, and they learn a lot and they take on a bit of a leadership role and they, they take pride in, in helping serving their peers. So um, uh, again, a bit of a hybrid model, but yeah, we, we are a very large operation with 
with um, just about 90 um, cooks in, a, in our schools. And then we have a very small administrative team as well. Um, there's eight of us here from the admin side. So we're just under or around 100. And if you had to probably factor in some of our call-in staff that we have um, on our on our payroll as, as a roster for, for calling in, if, if, if staff need time off, we're, we're over, just over 100 employees. And the kids love it. Absolutely. Um, the kids, uh, oftentimes, you wouldn't believe it, the phone calls and, and emails that I would receive and my staff receive from parents. How do you make that cheese pizza? What goes in that sauce? My child loves that cheese pizza. Or um, <laughs> they'll say, what is it exactly? How are you doing your garlic naan bread when you serve your goulash? My child loves the garlic naan bread. Where do you buy it from? Um, we, we, we get phone calls all the time. Um, and then the, the beautiful thing as well is children sitting next to other children will be trying fruits and vegetables they've never tried before. My friends tried this, so they'll go home and they'll tell mom or dad or, or nan or pop, they'll say, mom, I tried, um, I tried celery sticks today. I love them, whereas the child will probably never would have tried celery sticks before. So the children certainly love the meals, um, and we get uh, tremendous feedback all the time from parents as well as our administrators and teachers in schools. So how do you source your menu items? Where do they come from? Well, from a procurement side, it's a very large operation. Um, again, very fortunate to have a, a great uh, staff to work with here uh, at the School Lunch Association. We have one individual who's responsible for procurement, and that's a big challenge. Um, I guess the best benefit that we have um, is we know what we're serving in advance. So unlike a restaurant, if you're a cook or a chef in a restaurant, you have no idea how many patrons are going to come to your door for, for, for lunch or for a supper, and then they order, and then the chef is in the back or the cook's in the back preparing it. On our side of the operation, we ask our parents to order their food a couple of weeks in advance. So, for example, we're now into the first week of December, and our menus are open until Tuesday, uh, December 13th. And so during this ordering period, parents are ordering lunches for their child for January. So as a result of that, by the end of next week, we now have a handle on how many children we are looking to feed, and therefore we can have a, a great advanced opportunity to look at how much food we need to procure. Um, and so that's essentially how that works. And it's, it's quite large. I mean, the, we work with a variety of vendors um, who, who source and price different costs for us and, and um, to try and assist with, you know, uh, the active inflation challenges, um, if you will. But, uh, the, you know, the vendors, there's trucks on the road Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all over uh, the metro region delivering food to all of these schools. It's uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 50, upwards to $60,000 a week worth of food and milk right now. And you just touched on it, but uh, I was going to ask you, what, what are your costs? How, how, do, how have they changed over the years? The cost it, right now is probably the, the greatest challenge that we're facing. And, you know, yourself and your listeners and, and uh, your colleagues in the newsroom, you're, you're relaying the stories every day. We're hearing the, the rising cost of, of food. And naturally, as, a, as an organization that, uh, that's going to serve over a million meals this year, uh, we're no different. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a drastic increase uh, last year, and then we've seen some supply chain things settle down, and uh, now we're kind of seeing a little bit of a 
spike back up. And then with some recent reports, um, as, as you're probably aware, we're looking at a, another increase as well. So that becomes a challenge. Um, but I can tell you, it's a credit to the staff here who, who developed the menus in, in the sense that when you're procuring at this such high volume, you, you have an opportunity to try and bring down some of your costs. And then each of these menu items are built around um, exactly that. So, for example, if it's macaroni and cheese on the menu today, we know exactly how many pounds of macaroni and cheese will equate to how many servings for how many child, and we kind of break it right down to the T that way. So that's certainly beneficial. But the cost and the increasing cost is one thing we can't control. And with uh, rising diesel costs and, again, unsettling supply chain, uh, inflation, it's certainly a tremendous challenge right now. And what about, you touched on this when I was um, sitting in for Patty Daly there a week or so ago, but um, what about a family's ability to pay? How has that changed? Yeah, so again, our model is such we, we ask families to pay what they can. And the, the whole premise of the program was built around exactly that, ensuring that all children have access to a hot, nutritious lunch, regardless of their family's financial situation. And that's why when our parents go to our checkout after they order their meals, they certainly have the option to adjust the subtotal to reflect what they feel they can pay. We have started to see a, a big change in that this, this current year, this current school year um, compared to last year. Of course, we were just coming out of two years of, of COVID um, operation in school, which was also another tremendous challenge. But just, just this last year alone, we're almost seeing double the number of families who are unable to pay anything at all. So again, the program's non-stigmatizing in that you or nor I, if we were eating today, have any idea how much our families paid. But naturally, as a, an association, a large organization, we need to know that information. We don't know exactly who paid what, but we do see the amount of, of uh, orders that are coming in. So we have just over 8,000 parents. And uh, last month, you know, we had uh, 1,900 um, that were unable to pay anything at all. And uh, and then there's the folks that can only pay a partial amount um, as well. So the families who would normally have paid, let's say, the full $4 that we request, which is a very modest request, $4 for the meal based on, on what we prepare, the families that could afford to pay the full $4 seem to be struggling uh, to, to pay that same amount this year. And, and I can only surmise that it's a direct result of um, challenges that households are facing as well as a result of inflation right now. So where do you see this going from here? I mean, Dalhousie is predicting a further increase in food prices of 7%. Yeah, and that's that's a scary number. Um, and and we, I read part of that report that was just released earlier in the week. You know, there's only so many things we can do um, with respect to – I mean, our job is going to be to prepare lunches every single day. So we have two static costs. We're essentially like a big restaurant. We have to buy food, and we have to pay staff to cook that food. Those two costs are fixed, so they won't change. The only other difference from us in a restaurant on the revenue side is we hope to achieve the $4 per meal, whereas the restaurants, 
the return on investment. They know that the patrons are going to pay, and they have their menus and their, their prices designed that way. So for us, the only other option is finding additional revenue streams, and a lot of that comes in from um, tremendous donors and corporations who donate to our program and, and organizations that have for many years. Um, provincial government funding, you know, there's a huge conversation going on right now at the national level about a national school food program. Um, we're hoping that may um, have some benefits in the spring budget from from the federal side of things. So we have to look at donations, we have to look at grants, and we um, have to, again, subsidize the other part of the the revenue side of our ledger, which uh, which we don't seem to be collecting from parents right now. So are you open to donations from the general public? Oh, absolutely. Um, and we receive donations all the time. And so there's, there's families, um, and particularly, you know, families who can afford to pay. They'll go in, they'll order the meals for the month that the, the, their child wishes to have, and then they'll go to our donate page and uh, and send in a donation as well. And, of course, as a registered charity, I mean, we'll provide a tax receipt uh, f- for that. You know, we have some good corporate donors. Uh, right now the folks at Pipers are running a Christmas campaign for us. Um, the folks at Pipers are in partnership with the St. John's Port Authority. They've been doing this for years. Every Christmas, they do a little Christmas ornament, and they raise funds in their stores and then in turn provide us with a donation. Um, we just had a union walk in the door the other day with a donation for us. A retired teacher just came in last week um, with a couple hundred dollars of a check of a donation. And so generally what we've seen is that folks who have had children in the program or are aware of the program or have been benefited fisheries of the program, they're the ones who tend to seem to come back and provide a donation because they understand the benefit. Um, but by, by all means, yeah, we're, we're certainly open to donations. We just had some new donors come on board this year. Uh, ben Sergi Spa, you know, uh, did, did some work with us. Hanlon Realty has always been good to us. There's, there's so many different organizations that have been good to us. But again, these organizations are being taxed and challenged and asked to donate in, in a variety of other means. So we are... Um, we're a charity with, uh, with our handout, like, like many others, essentially. So certainly we would welcome any donations. Do some of these challenges um, hinder you in plans to expand to more schools? Um, to some degree, yes, naturally. I mean, when you, when, you look at, when you look at budgeting out for a year and planning on serving over a million uh, meals, and you know, we're looking at just over 2.3 uh, million in food costs. So you can imagine looking at just to get through the end of the year, understanding how much donations you would need to receive um, and how much support you would need from the parents participating in the program. Anytime we want to consider expanding, we have to have a careful eye to that budget. Um, But expansion is certainly something that we are interested in. Like I said, there's a a number of schools all across the island have reached out. We'd love to get there. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with a very great volunteer board of directors and and uh, we just underwent a bit of a strategic planning process where um, expansion is certainly a goal, um, but we also need to consider uh, maintaining and sustaining what we have before we can have a school lunch program pop up in, in communities all across the province. But in an ideal world, yes, that's the goal, because at the end of the day, we're just trying to provide uh, a hot, nutritious lunch to children, um, and particularly those in schools that don't have a cafeteria or don't have a food provider um, or are unable to find means to, uh, to have a lunch each day. John, any final thoughts? 
No, I just uh, thank you to you and your listeners, uh, you know, for, for having me on the program and, and hearing a little bit about our program. Um, as you said, you know, they're, they're, the beneficiaries of this program are the children, right? And, and currently right now, you know, we're, we're in 41 schools. I believe there's about 256, uh, 258, somewhere in that vicinity in the province. Um, but in the 41 schools, there's 15,000 children that have access to our program each and every single day. Um, and over 12,000 are registered. So the uptake is huge. The need is certainly there, um, and you know, at the end of the day, like I said, we're just trying to to feed children. Any support that your listeners or anyone has any questions they would like to, to reach out, please don't hesitate to do so. They can do so by visiting schoollunch.ca um, or and give us a call or find our donate section on our website. Excellent, and uh, the no- number seven five four five three two three. Seven five four five three two. You. That's right. We're here on Topsail Road in St. John's. John, all the best to you. If we don't speak before then, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you as well, and to your listeners. Thank you so much, Linda. That's the executive director of the School Lunch Association, John Finn. When we come back after the break, we're going to have a chat with Carboneer Mayor Frank Butt. As you know, uh, Carboneer is in the news lately, but there's so much more going on than um, this uh, controversy, I suppose, about the train there. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, you've been watching the news lately, no doubt, and you'll see that the town of Carboneer has learned just how important a local landmark is, not just to local residents, but to the province as a whole. The town made the difficult decision to scrap the old 803 CNR locomotive outside the local train station after it had fallen into some serious disrepair, and there's some pretty serious safety concerns there as well. So that prompted a huge response from people right across the province who wanted to see every effort taken to try to save that important part of the province's railway history. Well, here to talk a little bit about that and some of the many things happening in the hub of the bay is Carboneer Mayor Frank Bott. Hello. Hello, Linda. Thank you for having me today. Well, thanks for coming on. So the old CNR locomotive might be saved yet. The old 803. Yeah, there's still hope there. You know, we did make a motion there at the last meeting to... uh, have it scrapped, but uh, you know, uh, since that time, as you just said, that there's been so much interest into it that uh, we're certainly going to revisit it again and uh, see what we can do to save this uh, this uh, girl and uh, restore it back to its glory. Were you uh, surprised or anticipating the, the response you got? Well, you know, we, we, I guess you know we, we we've been at this for years trying to seek funding and that, and and you know we we pretty much exhausted everything that we could. So when we made the motion, and then all of a sudden the social media picked up on it, it just came out there. Yeah, we were really surprised, but it's so much so that uh, we certainly gave it another second look, and uh, hopefully that we'll uh, get some funding for this or somewhere along the way to, to restore it. Are you hopeful that funding can be raised, especially now that it has this high profile or or at least uh, secured to do the work needed? We're confident that we're going to get funding somewhere. Now, I, I, I can't say it's going to be federal or provincial. It, it may be just uh, local residents or even the provincial uh, people in the province wanting to make sure that this piece of equipment stays here. So what we're going to do, basically, you know, uh, after this meeting here or after our little interview, I'm going to send off a little uh, email to our council uh, to uh, request that a uh, an ad hoc committee be set up to investigate what we can do to make sure that we uh, are making the right decision on this piece of equipment. 
And uh, is your MHA on board, uh, the local MP? Well, we haven't reached out to those guys yet, even though we have reached out for funding over the years. And, and at this time, at that time, there was no funding available. But uh, they certainly w- will be approached and uh, we'll uh, explain to them the, the, the interest that's there. And then we're looking forward to, uh, I'm confident that somewhere along the way, there's going to be something there that would uh, make that little uh, piece of equipment, uh, you know, be restored back to the way it was. For the benefit of our listeners, what's the history on that particular uh, locomotive? Well, I'm not quite sure how far it goes back, but I know that it came into Carbonier in 1989, January the 18th. It came came in by flatbed because that was the end of the uh, the railway in Newfoundland, Labrador, in Newfoundland. And uh, so what happened there is that they came in, we put it on the tracks there, right before my time, of course. And, uh, you know, we kept it up over the years, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, with everything, if you don't maintain something, it certainly deteriorates. And it is next to the salt water, and that doesn't help, uh, you know, things to uh, maintain the way they are. So, uh, so that's a story on that, I guess, Linda. It, 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 it's, uh, I think in 1959, I think it was, is when they started uh, in operation in, in Newfoundland. So uh, that's about 60 years, something like that. And do you do you have any? I mean, obviously, you've been learning a lot about this over the last twenty four or thirty six hours. But um, uh, do you know much about how many of these are left? I understood that there's two in Canada, uh, one in Newfoundland, of course, and there's one in, I believe, maybe Quebec. I'm not quite sure exactly, but I believe there's two in Canada, and we have one of them. So I think it's certainly worth uh, a second look at, and that's what we're doing right now. Wow, that is rare. Yes, it is, yep. So, yeah, it's not hard to imagine why people think this is pretty important. I mean, you know, people come in, they they, they want to go down there and get their pictures taken, wedding pictures, grad pictures, or just if you're visiting the town of Carabineer, they want to go downtown and say, let's go down and have a look at that, uh, look at the railway station and and the other, you know, things that we have on going downtown and and around town. But, uh they want to get their picture taken with it, and, and they're, they're happy to do that. So we're just hoping that we can put a bit of, bit of a better facelift on it so that uh, those pictures are just a little bit more better looking. Um, not to give away too much about my age, but when I was small, Water Street, of course, was the focal point of commerce in Carbonier. But all that shifted, of course, in, what was it, 79, 1980-something around there when the new mall went in on the, on the highway. But there's been a lot of work done in recent years to revitalize Water Street. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, back in 1979, that's when uh, the, the TC Square opened up, and uh, a lot of the businesses that were in the Water Street area they migrated over to the to the west, and they set up a shop there. And I believe uh, the Joint Council of uh, Conception Bay North they lobbied the provincial government to uh, extend the road, and we call it the new road to bypass Carbonier. So once that was put in place, uh, it certain, certainly took away from uh, a lot of the traffic that was down in the downtown area. So there was still life there, but we just needed to be able to get it back. So what we've done, we've uh, came up with a plan there, and we uh, decided to we're going to revitalize the downtown area. We're going to do it in three phases. Phase one is complete, and I have to say that the return on the investment for that is very high, and people are, are really happy that, that, uh, that we've done what we've done. It kind of brings in people, and it doesn't just uh, help Carbonier. It helps all the area, you know, from, from down the shore up to bay. It was the stone jug a big part of that uh, that revitalization? Yeah, I guess the, uh, the owner saw the value in what we're doing there. I mean, uh, that building that was there, it lay dormant for years and years and years. Uh, I remember the wall, the, the block wall was coming, was bulging out and all that. 
So we're very fortunate that the owner came along and said, you know, we're, we're going to do this up. We see potential here in the downtown area. And that's what he did. He invested uh, a lot of money into the building. And uh, we're very thankful for that, of course. And now we have uh, one of many uh, well-established restaurants in the downtown area. Of course, you had a bit of a calamity there in um, what, the last year or so. I, I, it's hard to keep track of times uh, since COVID, as you know. Uh, but you had a bit of a calamity there. A couple of buildings were lost due to fire. Um, what's the latest on that? Will they be taken down, revital, uh, and, and and restoration done there, or, or rebuilding? Yeah, well, phase two, phase one was completed, of course, and uh, everything seemed to be going along pretty good there, you know. Uh, and then we had this fire back in, uh, it was Holy Thursday in in, uh, in April, it was. I remember it well. I fought the fire along with uh, my brothers and sister in, in the fire department there, and along with the uh, Victoria and Sam Cove uh, fire department, Imperial Cove. Uh, that was uh, back in, that was eight months ago. Uh, the, the buildings are still there. Uh, they are uh, they are burnt out. Uh, they have to come down. They're, they're not. Uh, they're not salvageable. We did issue an order to uh, a demolition order there, probably about three months ago now, two two and a half, three months ago. So we we have to seriously look at it because not only unsightly, it's certainly a safety hazard, and uh, it certainly doesn't go well with the uh, with the plan for the downtown. No, indeed, and it's only just cordoned off with a bit of tape, really. Yeah, we got some uh, barricades put up there, and it's just, you know, I mean, if we get a, a good windstorm, something like that, uh, you know, the, the debris will be blown around. So we're going to get that done pretty quickly, hopefully. And in uh, phase two, which we're hoping to start up in uh, as soon as the weather breaks in the spring. So uh, we're on the go for phase two. We having, we all got our funding applied for, and we and received a, a acknowledgement that we have we've received our funding, and now we're actually uh, applying for phase three. So uh, hopefully, uh, within I'd say two years, we should have downtown Carbonier complete. Uh, any plans for those two properties once those uh, burnt out buildings are torn down? Well, they still belong to uh, to, to uh, individuals, I guess. So it's, it's their property. Uh, they, if they tear them down, they can certainly build back again because the regulations for the downtown is a little different than, uh, say, in other parts of the town. So hopefully, uh, you know, we, we certainly don't want a vacant lot there. That's that's no good. That doesn't really create any commerce for our, our visitors and that. So uh, by all means, they can either rebuild there or they may decide to sell we, we don't really know that'll be something that uh, you know they, they will decide and uh, we certainly w- will work with them as well to make sure that uh, you know things get done properly are you pleased so far with the revitalization of that area yes absolutely uh, a little disappointed that this year didn't take off for phase two but uh, you know things the, the, the wheels of motion don't always run smoothly so uh Come uh, spring, we'll we'll have it all done, and uh, as soon as the weather breaks, uh, we're sure that the uh, whoever's a successful bidder for the for the contract will get in there and get the job done, and uh, we'll have another section of uh, downtown done, and we're looking forward to the third one. Our guest today on On Target is Carboneer Mayor Frank Button. When we come back after the break, Frank, I want to ask you about budget time. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And our guest today is Mayor of Carboneer, Frank Butt. And Frank, it's that time of year. The budget's coming down. Um, How has inflation affected town operations and how is that going to be incorporated into your, your budget? 
looking at like a 7 8% uh, inflation rate there opposed to our regular 2%. So certainly, you know, uh, things are, are going to change, of course. Now we do, or we're going to meet on Monday to, revo- to uh, review the draft budget. So uh, we'll find out uh, on Monday for sure, you know, what exactly is, is there. And that's where we sit down and we decide, you know, we should do this or we should take it a little bit from here and move it over here. So I think, uh, you know, inflation will certainly play a role, but uh, I'm not anticipating any tax increases. Uh, I don't think the people uh, in our town of Carabineer or, or anywhere in the province would like to see that. I, and I'm pretty confident that there won't be any. I think uh, we have a healthy, strong financial situation in our town, and I think that will be displayed now after we pass our budget in December. It's a bit of an old term. I can remember it growing up, but the hub of the bay. Is uh, Carboneer still the hub of the bay? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I just wanted to go back in time a little bit there. From October the 1st to November the 1st, uh, we had our first hub of the bay harvest festival. And our EDTO, our Economic Development Officer, Carrie Abbott, she did a fantastic job in securing funds. And uh, what we did then was uh, we purchased a lot of uh, Halloween-related items, and we placed them all over the town of Carbonier. So uh, uh, hats off to Carrie. She, she, if just funny out there, she's going to grab it. <laughs> and I, and I'm a, I can see Carrie now. She's probably saying, "Why are you saying, Frank? Don't go saying that anymore." <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like she's a, she's a very good at that. So. Uh, Funding there is uh, was was good, so we're, we're still a hub of the bay, and uh, we're going to keep going that way. A business attracted to the town, you know, seeing a lot more business development. Yes, uh, we have a section of land over in the western part of uh, the town. Uh, there is some. Uh, while there's no permit. Uh, in for development, there is a large piece of land that is grubbed off. Uh, the, there was a permit to have grubbed off, and I believe within the next week or so, there will be some kind of uh, application for a, uh, a business in that area. So stay tuned on that. Uh, there's a lot of land over there, 30, 34, 35 acres, and uh, we already have Dairy Queen there, and I think uh, something else will be going there very soon. And with that, of course, uh, the things just keep going and other businesses come on in. So we're, we're doing well. Uh, we have over 250 businesses in Carabineer, so that's, that's good. And 50 of those are downtown. Ooh, intriguing. So you're not dropping any hints? No, well, no, we don't know. <laughs> I guess, like, like I said, there's no permit in there. So uh, when that happens, uh, once you're allowed to announce, it will be announced. Excellent. Um, and there was a lot of talk about a, a, a hotel, a boutique hotel, uh, going up in the Crocker's Cove area. Where, where does all that stand? It seems to have gone silent. Yeah, it, it has. Uh, I mean, uh, the investor did a lot of uh, engineering work down there. So, I mean, uh, it's all there. It's just a matter, I think, uh, when COVID came in there, uh, things just went south. Uh, we are looking forward. We, we still need a, a hotel in Carabineer, you know, uh, to complement the hotels and, and the rooms that we have here already. So I think a 100-room hotel or 250s would be uh, would be great. Uh, so, you know, we're not giving up on the Crocker's Cove area. Uh, like I said, they invested some money in the, in the engineering work. So, uh, you know, we should probably reach out to those uh, people in, in the very near future and see where they stand as well. I see the local historic society has done some uh, fabulous work uh, recently, recognizing the impact and influence of some of Carboneer's biggest biggest business families, the Fongs, the Udels, the Earls. Um, that's great work. What what else have you got planned there? 
Well, I mean, there's other other things here, like the like you said, the Fangs and and the Udells and and the, the Earls. They all played a major factor in the Powells and stuff like they made a, played a major factor in the uh, development of our town. Uh, you know, when we did the revitalization of Phase One of the downtown, there was a, uh, a business down there years ago. You may remember this called Hawker's Store. It was a big three-story building. I'm not sure if you remember that or not. I can't remember that. I remember Ayers, but that's about it. Oh, yeah. Ayers was here, but uh, this is on Water Street, and there was a step that was left there. You know, the building was torn down, but the step was a little concrete slab was always left there. So someone had the hindsight to remove that and and secure it, and uh, that's going to be replaced back to uh, in in the vicinity where it was, and then probably a storyboard would go there to go with that to tell a story of the Hawker family. Well, that's great. And what about the uh, the second Rourke store, the one that went down in that uh, gale of wind? Yeah, well, the, the remnants of it is still there, the, the foundation. Uh, I don't know if we need to have another building uh, attached to that one there. Uh, but, you know, if, if we did do it, we certainly would build it back to the way it was and uh, maybe connect it to a building. So that's how they were connected by a, an upstairs uh, walkway and that uh, for loading fish and coal, whatever they did back then. So I don't know. I mean, right now uh, there is a, it's basically an open space with the foundation there. Uh, we, we have used it over the year. Actually, even this uh, Christmas, we have it all decorated for uh, Christmas. I think there's uh, uh, reindeers down there, I believe. So uh, we're using the space. And if you go down towards the harbor front, there's a nice uh, patio back there. And we do have uh, like a different concerts, accordion playing out there as well. So what other exciting stuff is going on on Carboneer these days? Well, I'm just looking at the month of December. Uh, I'm not going to go through everything here now, but uh, you know, we started off December, of course, with our annual tree lighting ceremony, December 1st. And uh, on December 5th, we had our first bright night parade, and that was very successful. So we started off at the uh, Bethany United Church and it ended up at the uh, public gardens over on the beach. And it was in the nighttime. It was, it was lit, and uh, people enjoyed it, and uh, it can only get better. So next year, we're going to look forward to it. And I think once people see what we did, it's going to be great. Uh, also, Linda, now on December 7th, uh, December 11th is uh, the 69th annual Carabineer Volunteer Fire Department Santa Claus Parade. And uh, tonight, uh, Wednesday night, we're going to be, uh, Santa has asked the fire department if they would help uh, make the goodie bags for this. So that's what's uh, going to take place tonight. So a lot of work goes into the Santa Claus Parade. You know, I mean, Santa is pretty busy. So he relies on the people to help him along and the Carabineer Volunteer Fire Department uh, along with other people. That's what they do. They they help out, and uh, so tonight, like I said, they're going to make the about 2,500 bags, so which is good. And you know, Linda, there's a load of other stuff here. I'm not going to name them all because we will be here all night, but all day. But uh, on December 12th, the 13th annual Christmas concert at the Princess Sheila and the Gear will, will be taking place. The Irish descendants and the navigators are going to be there. And you know, there's other stuff there. Story time on the on the 12th at the uh, railway uh, museum as well. Uh, afternoon tea for the seniors on the 14th. Uh, December 16th is uh, the Christmas bingo. Now, here's one that I really have to plug, and that's on December the 17th. It's the 7th Annual Janice Parade, and that's sponsored by the Carabineer Downtown Business Association. It's been neglected for the past two years because of COVID, but now we're going to come back with it. And uh, the last time we had it, uh, the streets were lined up with people there waiting to, to, to uh, watch it and take part into it as we walked by. People joined in, so... 
we're keeping the, the tradition of Janine alive. And for those townies out there, that's mummering. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> but I always grew up knowing it as Jannies and Jannying, so uh, so happy to hear that that name is being kept. That's right, yeah. We, we put a lot of effort into it as well, and, you know, and you can't have it without the people, the, the participants. They got, the, you know, and because it's in the nighttime, so it's a lighted parade, but it's a walking parade. You dress up in, in your jannies and, and you, you uh, wear some kind of light because you're, you are going to be walking in the nighttime. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, I think the weather's going to be great on that night, so uh, it'll be successful again. Frank, but a pleasure as always. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks so much. No problem, Linda. If anyone wants to see the, the full calendar of events, they can go to carabineer.ca and it's, it's there. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow for another show. Frank, thanks so much. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening, everyone.